Good morning again. A few days ago, um, there was an email exchange about my possibly doing a talk today. It wasn't planned. And um, when asked what to do it on, I thought, um, I felt I wanted to do it on Sangha. And the reason is because recently, and not that this isn't the case for me often, but recently, I've been overwhelmingly moved by Sangha. We came out of a Rohatsu Sashin recently, which is the retreat we do at the end of every year to celebrate uh, the Buddha's enlightenment. And indicative of the entire practice period, or representative of the entire practice period, I should say, um, there was just an enormous energy of courage and freedom. And so I've been thinking about that and feeling how nourishing that was for me, how encouraging that was for me. So in the um, Upada Sutta, which is one of the suttas, a Pali equivalent to sutra in Sanskrit, which is the word we mostly know, at least in this tradition. In the Upada Sutta, there is an exchange between Ananda and the Buddha. And Ananda is, I find Ananda to be very dear out of the disciples of the Buddha because he is he's the one who seems to be wrapped up in all the very human exchanges. You know, there's lots of these kind of metaphysical questions or very intensely and specifically articulated aspects of mind and all of these things in the early writings. But Ananda shows up in, in a different way. For example, you, he's the first ally in, um, in Buddhism, in the sense that when the Buddha was not um, ready or didn't quite understand yet about the inclusion of women in the order, it was Ananda who made the argument over and over and over again until the Buddha finally realized that this might be a good idea. And not to mention that the story goes that there were women on the edge of the order that refused to leave. And so even after the Buddha's death, Ananda kept um, arguing for this. In the first council, when they were deciding about the Vinaya and the rules of the monastic tradition, there was an argument between Kashyapa and Ananda. Those were kind of the two factions that it organized around. And Ananda still was arguing, both for the laity and for women in the order. And he kind of lost, or so the story goes, he kind of lost. And, um, and the monastic order became pretty patriarchal. But 
he's talked about in this way where he's the last one of the original disciples to wake up. I've been thinking about that, and I, I, I often think, well, maybe it's because there was a, still a limited understanding in those disciples after the Buddha of the different ways we wake up. And Ananda seemed to be very much through the heart. And maybe that was missed. It's hard to know. But in this story, Ananda was the one who memorized all of the Buddha's words and passed it on because none of this was written down for about 500 years. Well, depending. When the Buddha lived has about a 200-year range right now in terms of when that might have been. But about 500 years after the Buddha's life, this was all written down. But up until then, it was memorized and passed on. And Ananda was one of the main ones who memorized all of words. He was his attendant, the Buddha's attendant, and went around with him. And so he was usually settled right by his side. And in this exchange, he turns to the Buddha and he says, uh, the half of the holy life is the Sangha. And he says, the half of the holy life is good friendship, good companionship, and good comradeship. Those are the, in Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation, those are the three words he chooses. So good friendship, um, being with, um, being invested in, being like-minded with the people who are with you, having an affinity for them, having a um, desire to support them. Good companionship, the way we, you know, from the Latin of with bread, the ones we break bread with, the ones we eat with, the ones we decide to nourish and support, and that nourish and support us. And comradeship, or camaraderie. Actually, it's an interesting word, because originally it just means the, somebody you live with. It comes from camera, or to be a roommate with someone, to live in the same space with them. But it's grown, right? It has social meanings now. It has political meanings. It has a feeling of deep alignment with the people we're with. But this idea of sangha, of Ananda suggesting that sangha is half of the holy life. And the Buddha, it feels very gentle. The Buddha turns to him and says, Ananda, don't say that. Don't say that. Sangha, this good friendship, this good companionship, this good camaraderie is the whole of the holy life. Is the whole of the spiritual life. Is the whole of the life of awakening. So I've been thinking about that in terms of Zen because it feels true. It feels true. It feels um, many people in the last few weeks have 
made comments about what it was like when they practiced alone and what it's like when they practice in Sangha. And um, what it is to be together with a shared intention. What it is to be reflected by each other. And so what is this whole of the practice life or whole of the holy life? Whole of the sacred life? And how do we understand that in Zen? How do we do that together here? Because in um, some call Soto, you've probably heard Soto Zen is this tradition, this school. There's only two Zen schools left. There's Rinzai and Soto, and we're Soto. And some have um, called it, well, it's been nicknamed Farmer Zen, as opposed to Rinzai, which was the Zen of the leadership and the royalty and the samurai classes. But it's also been called family style. You know, that this is the... Um, that this is the family style of Zen, and that we understand ourselves, in a way, in family. Sangha is family. Our ancestry is family. Um, we enter into a different understanding of what it is, maybe, over time to be connected to each other. So Sangha. Sangha is the great mirror. The first thing we do when we think about coming to this practice, I think many of us, is it's all about zazen, right? We're just coming in to meditate. Forget the other people in the room. We are here to sit on a cushion and deal with ourselves. And they're mostly in the way. They're kind of irritating. They do things I don't like. And this would be so much better if this room existed with people that just never bothered me. <laughs> and so that is the first mirror, usually. That's the first mirror, the mirror of sitting down and beginning to cultivate the capacity to bring the mind back to something. First, the first thing we have to do is actually the mind's all over the place. So we can't mirror our own minds, right? Because we're just running. We're running away from who we are. We're running away from thoughts. We're just running. So the first thing we have to do is to stop running in a little way, tiny little way, stop running. And one of the ways to do that is to just bring our attention back to our breath over and over until two things happen in that. One is that the mind stops running all over the place. And the other is this stabilization of what we sometimes call the watcher, but this stabilization of a perspective, of something that isn't moving all over the place, so that when the moving all over the place happens, we're not being yanked all over the place. And then a mirror is born. And we notice what our mind does, and oh my god. I didn't see that, I didn't see that, I didn't know that. That's miserable, that's how all of this stuff comes in. <coughs> and then Zen gives us a, a 
another set of mirrors, which are all these rituals and forms. We bow, we bow away, we don't like them, we do like them, these are great, I hate them, this is stupid, everything's good except that service. <laughs> Whatever it is. And the black and the robes and the blah, blah, blah. Um, that becomes a mirror. The minute, by the way, the second you hate the forms, they're working. <laughs> because they only exist in agreement so that we see the way our mind averts and grasps. Doesn't matter, we're always doing ritual. It's just in most of our, I mean, we are always embodying ritual everywhere, all the time. It's just mostly we choose the ritual we like. We don't have anything to do with the rituals we don't. So now we have rituals we don't necessarily like. And so that mirror, we get to see. And then we have work practice. Same thing. Same thing. And then sometimes we meet with teachers who can be very strong mirrors to us. Still the same thing. But all of this is taking place in the context of Sangha. All of this is taking place in, within a group of people who are making an agreement to be together, to look at themselves together. And so that when I bump up against the rituals and when I bump up against zazen and when I don't want to do this and I want to do that and I don't like that person and so on, this is just all showing me this mind. Sitting at home is great. I think it's great. Sitting at home is a very limited window into our habits. It's a great window. Zazen's a wonderful window. There are, there's a whole history of hermit, hermits who go out and buy this. By the way, most of those hermits spend time in a monastery first. I'm just laying that out there. But, um, but there is a tradition of being alone and looking at the mind and dealing with that. What is it to actually be alone? And how do I get riled up and scared and afraid and lonely and all of these things when I sit alone? So that is legit. But in our culture and in this place, um, we have an ability to manage our lives, less so in New York, but um, an ability to manage our lives in such a way that we just do what we want. And we can, and that may be hide out in our house all the time. Although I was in tech, my, my immediate family's in Texas, and um, every time I go back there and realize, you know, in Texas, you know how everybody has black cars here? Like white is the car color, more down there, right? So cars are white, and everybody's got tinted windows, maxed out. So you can come out of your house, get in your tinted window car, and drive around all day, and do things. You can't see in the car next to you. Do things, and, um, and talk to four people. You know, in the whole day. It's amazing. 
But um, that's not so easy here. But we come into this, and um, Sangha is kind of like family. We do not choose them. Once we come into this space and choose Sangha as a way of being, there are all kinds of people in Sangha we do not choose. And, um, and so I get to see how I can't open to that person. This brings up another mirror, which are the precepts. So there's a major um, mirror in our tradition where we can choose to align ourselves with certain intentions of non-harm. We choose not to kill. We choose not to take what's not given to us. We choose not to lie and to abuse sexuality in our bodies, to not praise myself over other people. There are a lot of things, you know, and we choose these because until we choose them, we don't see what we're doing. Praise self at the expense of others. You take that one up, and it's all over the place. Embarrassingly so. But, um, but who, when do we pay attention to that if we don't actually make a decision to pay attention to it? If we don't actually raise an intention to pay attention to it? And Sangha's there too. Because if I'm out in the world with my precepts, I mean, I can certainly, I'm going to pay attention to them to the best of my ability. But it's a little different in here where you know other people know the precepts. <laughs> and they know that you're supposed to be paying attention to them, especially if you're wearing like this or a blue thing around your neck. And, um, and then you feel that silence when somebody chooses to compassionately not respond to something that you just said that was kind of not so great. All of this um, is a deeply profound gift of the reflection of Sangha. All the aspects of it, none of it works. None of it works at its deepest level without Sangha. And so when the Buddha was forming the first Sangha, kind of people heard him and they showed up. And who knows who's going to show up. Um, a lot of the regular people you would expect, the already educated religious types, the Brahma class, would, came. There were a lot. But there was also the sprinkling of um, workers and one serial killer. And, you know, there are a few people in there that you wouldn't expect. And um, if you don't know the story of Angulimala, the serial killer that ended up as a disciple of the Buddha. Just type in serial killer Buddha, you'll get it. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, you know, the Buddha was really clear when asked about things like caste and gender and sex. He was very clear that 
none of these get in the way, none of these change our capacity as human beings to awaken. That he, that he was really clear on. What he did not talk about was, as much as we all just wish this were true, but it's not in the sutras, is the overturning of those relationships. You know, it's the overturning of caste. It's the overturning of, he was even resistant to women coming in because he thought it would, you know, there was one aspect of it, it would wreck the social fabric. They're really not going to accept this crazy movement if we do that. That's a little too far. And so there is a, this creates an interesting history to Sangha. Because the rules inside Sangha uh, are thought to be one way, and then the rules outside Sangha are like, eh, you know, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. But that's changed and is changing. And, um, and it hasn't always been true. I will say this. I will say that we, the Sangha that we have um, record of is predominantly the male Sangha. So that's really important to understand because it's a very specific frame of people who are usually well-funded at, at least at points in history by their government or by the wealthy of their class, there were the women's sanghas. Not so well-funded, not taken as seriously. And so where, what, they, what did they do? They are not found on mountaintops. They were not in these rarefied monastic environments. They mostly existed, those, those abbeys, if we want to call them that, mostly existed on the edge of towns and on the edge of villages, and mostly provided services. Mostly were supportive of the community and were integrated in a way that the monasteries were not. We don't have that history in the same way. Which is too bad because of that history is the one we need to understand as Zen centers in the United States right now. That's the history that we actually could build from in a way that speaks to our moment, I think. So I hope people are digging up that history. Some are. So this outside, inside. We're at a... Um, There's always this tension then between, and you hear words like Mahasanga, and with new teachers, and this is a relatively recent phenomenon historically, but you hear a lot of new teachers talking about the Sangha. The whole world is the Sangha. Everyone is the Sangha. This is a radical shift in how um, traditional Buddhists say have understood the formal sanghas, the monastics. It's certainly a departure from Kashapa, who was more on the conservative side, versus Ananda, who had an interest in everybody being included. And so we seem to be at a time of Ananda. 
They seem to be at a time of Ananda, Ananda's way, at least in this country, catching hold. The four um, pillars of the Sangha that the Buddha mentioned were lay women, lay men, monastic women and monastic men. To embrace that fully. And so the rules of the Sangha, that nothing gets in the way of our awakening, that none of those things are in the way. That works, but then how do we support, how do we understand looking at the things that actually do get in the way? Things that are actually in the world that create social positions and and ways of being that are in the way. And what is Sangha in that? Do we hold the world to our expectations? that we hold the Sangha to. We can't insist on it because, frankly, we don't have that much power. But in our hearts, when we let Sangha be such a deep mirror for us, in our hearts, do we let Sangha be a deep mirror for the world? Do we make a decision to enter into our practice so deeply so thoroughly, with the goal, with the bodhisattva vow being what we're doing. Um, Goal's a terrible word, but let's just say vow. Um, Not a terrible word generally, terrible word for this. Um, With the vow that our effort here, which starts with our concern for ourself, for oneself and, and this awakening, and needs to, because without that process, the rest is, impo- is very difficult. But with that process and that opening and that mirroring and that slow unfolding, the unfolding, because in the beginning, dukkha, this whole idea that a mark of life is dukkha that the Buddha brings up, that there is no conditioned existence, there is no human existence condition that isn't marked by suffering by disease, by dissatisfaction. That's where we're kind of obsessed in the beginning and need to be for a while. But the interesting thing, what, the, what ego wants, what Sep itself wants is, when that suffering ends, like, I'm going to go skiing for the rest of my life. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deal with this. I'm good. But there's a, there's a side effect of opening... Um, I don't even know how to ski, so that would be terrible for me. But, um, but there's an opening of the heart through the process of opening our, to our own dukkha that opens the heart to everyone. You can't choose. Because not being able to open one one's heart to another person is not opening one's heart to oneself. They are not separate processes. That person you can't open your heart to is in you at that moment. It's coming up in your mind. It's coming up in your body. You don't know who that person is. The person's a complete, total mystery. All of you will remain a mystery. I'm a mystery to me. All of you are going to certainly remain a mystery. 
So that thing that we can't accept that's arising is, that is us, that is me, that's arising. So if I'm opening to all aspects of myself, I am opening to all people, all of life and all of humanity. I'm opening to all of it. And if I can't, then I can't open to me. So in that process of um, opening to our own dukkha, our heart opens to all beings. And so you're not out of the dukkha world. Because now what we're going to feel forever is the dukkha of everyone. We're just building a capacity to actually feel suffering. To feel and process it. That sounds terrible, right? But it's not... um, Crippling. It's not crippling. The heart has pretty big capacity, it seems, when we're not pushing away what we don't want to see. When we let the person who's next to us in Zazen, who's moving around or coughing or whatever, in. When we let the um, loser, failure, whatever, of ourselves in. When we let the one that's hated in. You know, that's, that's an, I'm going to stop for a second and see if anybody wants to comment. Encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling of dukkha that feels overwhelming feels overwhelming because it's experienced from separation. That's why it feels overwhelming. The reason it feels terrible is because it's experienced from separation. So you're a little tiny person that's feeling all this dukkha. And um, in actually letting ourselves feel the whole of life in that way completely, that little tiny person gets eroded. And um, gets eroded by the deep commitment to looking at everything that hinders love and compassion. Anytime we're not feeling it, anytime I can't love that person, or I can't love that person, or I can't feel compassion, or I don't have... The the Brahma Viharas, which um, are this teaching around four aspects of the 
liberated mind, or we can cultivate toward it too. They're great indicators. Is there equanimity with this person? If there's not, okay, that's interesting. Uh, is there sympathetic joy? Am I excited about what's wonderful for them? Or am I kind of irritated that good things are happening to them and not to me? You know, um, compassion. Is there a capacity to feel the pain of another person? And myself. These all go for ourselves, too. You know, sometimes we're not happy. We don't feel sympathetic joy for ourselves. Um, and then there's compassion. And then there's... Um, it's, 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 it's often translated as loving kindness. I, am, I have a real affinity to just calling it lovingness. You know, because um, we often talk about it as grandmotherly mind in Zen. But just a feeling of lovingness for other people. And when I'm with that person, do I feel lovingness or do I'm kind of cold? Do I not feel anything? So those are really, um, taking those four up are really great because for me, I get to see right away, I do not feel those things right now. So what is in the way? What's the thought that's in the way? What's the body position that's in the way? What's the lack of self-care that's in the way? Which for me, that's a biggie. If I don't take care of myself, then my ability to experience others that way gets depleted. So, um, so in answer, response to what you're saying, as that goes away, the feeling of dukkha in the world is not bad. It doesn't feel um, it makes the heart even wider. Because our capacity to feel suffering is, the, is what strengthens the heart. So, and also, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but, well, actually, this is a neuroscience thing now. We cannot selectively uh, shut down emotions. If we dull pain, if the feeling of pain, we dull joy. So, by opening ourselves up, my experience is by opening ourselves up, myself up to compassion, I open myself up to the experience of joy, too, with the same de- strength and degree. I feel more the love of life. I feel more the joy of life. So, do we want an awake heart, or do we not? Do we want a protected heart? That stays kind of what Reb Anderson, one, t- one time he said to me that had a big effect, he goes, it's not up to me whether you want to stay a pint-sized version of yourself. That's your thing. A pint-sized version of yourself. Like, that's your thing to deal with. And um, I was like, damn, that's true. Um, and so we decide if we want a pint-sized version of our heart or not. And the pint-sized version of our heart will always feel overwhelmed by dukkha. Because it is. And so the thing is, is to actually let it be overwhelmed. Let it be overwhelmed until it breaks. And when it breaks, it's wide. 
that <laughs> that was long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doing research. <laughs> um, how do you open, how do you, how do you not feel anger towards um, leaders who are committing these heinous acts of, of violence and hurting people in the world? How, how, do, how do you actually open to that, and, and why would you want to? Hmm. So... Um, First for me, you know, I, I've struggled a long time with this because anger is what brought me to this practice. So for me, anger is, I've spent a lot of time looking at anger. I don't think anger is a problem. I, I think acting on anger is the problem. So um, feeling anger, and anger is not hatred. So let's make a distinction between when something is so horrific, so incomprehensible as a way to treat life, that anger comes up from the heart. And I do think real, true, we have one word for um, anger, which is terrible. And it's kind of not that great of a word because ang means to restrict. Like an angst or anxiety means to restrict. So that's not a... Um, it's not a great word for what I'm about to talk about, but we have one. So there is, there is that restriction where we close down to what's in front of us. And that's a problem. But that's not, there is a, what the Tibetans would call like a pure version or an untainted version of anger, which doesn't close down. It actually just comes up in clear force of no. It's a sacred no. No. This is not the way we should behave as loving people in the world. And that, I think, needs to be clearly honored. But the thing about that feeling, and it can come up with great strength, the thing about that feeling, it is, it is not confused, and this is a big thing, it is not confused by the belief that there is one being that you can eliminate to end dukkha or six beings, or 30 beings, or 70 beings. It does not get confused by that. That Trump is the problem, and Trump alone, or whoever. You know, I think actually it's dangerous, it's a dangerous habit of the mind to get confused by, um, to think that the forces of, if we want to call them evil, or the forces of violence, are reducible to any one person, or even any one cabinet. Uh, we have to ask deeper questions than that. What are the conditions of this arising? How did this come to be? This is what the Buddha asked us to do. He didn't say, you know, sati, or this, this original inquiry into um, the arising of suffering was, how does suffering come to be? How did these things come to be? So I think, in terms of these individuals, 
to realize they're conditioned beings. They too are conditioned beings. And they did not choose their conditioning. To, to really let this in, this is hard to let in, I recognize, but it just is a hard fact that none of us chose our conditioning. We didn't. And you could say, well, at a certain point I started doing things I shouldn't have done, so didn't I choose that? And it's like, well, if you weren't conscious yet, no, because you're just acting on conditioning that happened early in your life. So until there's a step back where you actually take responsibility for your conditioning, until that happens, you're just faded. It's just fate. So, to love people that are still faded. But that's not to not hold them responsible. Because I'm not loving them if I'm not holding them responsible. I'm not loving you if I don't hold you responsible for your actions. That's just all there is to it. There's nothing in Buddhism. Buddhism is a ridiculous level of responsibility. We're actually responsible for our thoughts once we make that decision. That's pretty deep. I mean, the Buddha was saying, if you have an unwholesome thought, that plants unwholesome karma, and which manifests, which flowers as actions that are unwholesome later. That's a pretty deep level of responsibility. Like, there's no door out. Okay, so, so responsibility, we hold each other responsible in that way, but the fact is, is that the vast majority of people are just, that's not what's going on. And it doesn't make them worse or better or anything. It's just, there just hasn't yet been a conscious decision to look at one's mind. Which means that they are being thrown around by dukkha, you know, in a way that is a horror for them in terms of their own experience of life. In terms of actually being rooted in life and in the earth and having some sense of what I'm thinking, of, what I th talk to myself about more and more, having some sense of our indigenous body, the body that actually is connected to the earth and is comfortable with itself and isn't trying to do so much. That's cut off from them. And so can we love that? Can we have, if we can't love it, can we have compassion for it? Can we have compassion for it? Is that enough? Because I think accountability has to be understood in the same frame as compassion and love, and not in the frame of revenge. Revenge sneaks in all the time. Sneaks in, sneak, creeps in the back door all the time. We think, it's like, really, we're all, oh no, this is what needs to happen, and so he needs to be in, he needs to be in prison for 250 years, you know, because he did something, and that's the approach. It's like, what? What are you talking about? I was having this conversation actually at Thursday night at the end of the koan group. We were talking about um, situations where somebody, we're talking specifically about situations where black lives are being killed in the street by armed, you know, by law enforcement. Black folks are being killed. And what's justice in that situation? 
So if we ask ourselves, Reb gave this talk about if we have an idea of what justice is, then we won't arrive at real justice because we'll constantly be wrecking it with our idea. And the thing is, is revenge so easily sneaks into the notion of justice. Because for me, if I ask my heart, what's justice? It doesn't have to do with the shooter. It has to do with no more lives being shot. That's it. I want that to stop. I want that to stop. So if I come from, I want that to stop, how do I get there? How do I get to that stopping? Because the rest, although an atrocity and deserving of grief and bring our heart forward, that's not. If we respond to that in ways that are caught up in making sure one person rots in prison, we're not, we're not necessarily getting to that not happening anymore. So I think getting very clear on what do I want, what, am I, what do I want? What does my heart really want? You know? And so for that responsibility to not have revenge sneak in, to hold them responsible in a way, to hold them in a responsible in a way that cultivates saving life. And not to hold them responsible in a way that is just about seeking vengeance on that person. So what is a responsibility that cultivates saving lives? That cultivates awakening, that cultivates their minds not being so confused that they think it's appropriate to shoot a person that's unarmed and not doing anything. We're not even close to that. I mean, we're starting. There are actually all these uh, anti-bias things that are starting to happen. I mean, there is this kind of thinking that's beginning to happen, but, but it's taken, it's slow. Does that get it? Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. We inhabit a male or female body, mm-hmm. and the chemistry, the biology, ego of the male and female body is different because that's the natural course to give us the highest probability of surviving as a species. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that at the essence of who we are is male or female. Mm-hmm. And th- does the Buddha? Identify the essence of who we are, male, female, and if he, if he does, or if it doesn't, that kind of put a natural separation into the essence of who we are being one? For the Buddha, there's no essence. For Buddhists, there's no essence. So the question's moot. There is no solid, permanent thing that is male or female, or anything else. There's just conditioning. And there's just the flow of conditioned reality and cause and effect, moving on and moving on and moving on. The confusion is trying to find and define an essence. It's a conditioned perspective. And it just makes problems. 
It seems to, yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah, so, so the practice with that is to notice the way our perspective is conditioned. To see really clearly, oh, I'm conditioned to think that way. Probably because of these things. But not in an effort to find some pure essence. But just to become very, very clear on our conditioning. So that we have a freedom to not go with it. To not go with that conditioning. Because we have a larger intention, a larger vow, to live for the liberation of everyone. So when we see our conditioning, male, female, whatever we want to call it, getting in the way of living for the liberation of all beings, the male perspective sometimes has that around the female perspective, right? Doesn't necessarily live for the liberation of women. So that's what we look at. Not because we're getting towards some pure essence. What is the essence? This question is, if the observer of the mind, what's the observer of the mind if we're not using language like essence or soul? So essence and soul, we just don't, you know, the Buddha specifically taught no Atman, no soul, no permanent separate self. So that's specific teaching. In terms of what is it, keep asking. <laughs> yes. I think it's a yes and, yes, yeah, because that, that's, but that's only a paradox. It's only a paradox if we are invested in a self-causing soul. In other words, and I'll explain that what I mean. So we have an idea, the reason, it's like we're holding them accountable, right, but then we're forgiving them. Why is that a problem? Why is that a paradox in any way? And it's a paradox because we've been so trained that we're all self-causing. You should be held to blame for anything you do, 100%, absolutely. In other words, it should be your fault 
The reason I split the word fault and responsibility is because I think they point to two different things, right? Nothing, nothing anybody does in terms of their conditioning, the way they're conditioning, is their conditioning is not their fault. Right? It came from all over the place. They grew up in the same thing we grew up in. Right? So it's not their fault. But we hold them responsible because otherwise society just, we're not, first of all, society isn't going to function. And two, um, it's the kindest thing we can do to them is to provide each other mirrors. Providing mirrors to behavior that creates harm and destroys themselves and continues the separate self and inflates dukkha further, that is love, that's kindness. Now, how to do that skillfully, that's a whole different set of discussions. But that, so, and the reason I say it's only a paradox, it's only a paradox if we still believe in this idea that it needs to be their fault and we need to make it their fault and they're the solitary source of their behavior. And if we hold on to that idea, then it's like, well, if I hold them responsible, how can I have compassion? And that's because in that scenario, you wouldn't have compassion for them because it's their fault. Right? It'd be impossible to hold that space. So you end up with this divide we have in our culture where you're either the responsibility school, where everybody is, you know, pulls themselves up by their bootstraps and all of that, or you're the compassion forgiveness school where you just kind of talk away everybody's response. You know, that's the ridiculous divide, but it's kind of where our, our political language is, right? Those two things live together just fine. They live together just fine. We can lovingly request each other's responsibility. We can demand it. And I think we should. Can I ask a sure. Um, so what does it mean to see the behavior as a response to both, condi it's both conditioning and the choice that the behavior is making? Uh huh. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's not necessarily a self aware choice, <laughs> not a deeply self aware choice. Right? Because if they're coming from a bunch of buried shame and fear, they don't even know what they're responding to. They think they're responding to stuff out here and they're responding to buried shame and fear. You know, so, so there's, and, and it's, again, it's not to let them off the hook, but for our own sanity, this is kind of a selfish move in a way, right? For my own sanity, I need to have a complete experience of them. For my own awakening, for my own life, I need to have a complete experience of them. Not some cordoned off experience that's based on my own trauma and my own anger and my own da 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 da. But here's the thing if we come from a complete experience of them, we can hold them in a, accountable in a much deeper, more convincing way. Because that voice that loves the one you're holding accountable is very hard to argue with. The one that's just like, you're an asshole and you need to, da, 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 that's very easy to argue with. You know, but loving accountability, that's hard. That we all, and I think the reason it's hard is because we all want it. We all want to feel accepted and be held to our greatest potential at the same time. We don't want to be shoved into our greatest potential, forced into our greatest potential, shamed into our greatest potential. We don't want to do that. 
but we don't want this floppy kind of love either. That's just like, oh, whatever you want to do, you know, you want to lay on the couch all day, fine. You know, that, not that either. We want both. So. Yeah, it's time. It's past time. Okay. Sorry for the hands that were raised. Um, thank you for coming on a snowy day. May our intentions equally. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.